please remain standing for a reading from God's word. This from 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice." and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Have you ever done anything that filled you with regret? The reality is that most of you in this sanctuary, me included, have done something in your lifetime that has filled you with a deep sense of regret. Whether it was regret over something that you did not do that you wish you had, or regret over something you did do that you wish you hadn't, the reality is is that all of us feel regret. If you don't believe me, I just want you to think about your New Year's resolutions for a second. Now, by now, hopefully, you've probably already made some if that's your tradition. 
My guess is whatever resolution you've made, it's somehow connected to some regret that you feel. You see, the things that we regret lead us to resolve to want to do better, to make it right, to do things differently. And so we resolve. We make resolutions. And if you're like me, it's not going to be a few weeks, let alone a few months, before you break those resolutions, which is going to fill you with regret. So you're going to make some more resolutions to resolve to not do those things and to live a life without regret. And then you're going to fail at those resolutions. Then you're going to have more regret. And suddenly you're caught in this vicious cycle of regret and resolution. Now, I know that's kind of a, a bleak picture and kind of hopeless. But the reality is regret is a very human experience. Leading research on regret comes from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, and this is what they have found. Regret is the most commonly experienced negative emotion, even more common than sadness or anger. Now, I know that seems hard to believe until you recognize that our regrets are deeply tied to the things that we love the most. Just like our fears that we talked about last week, our regrets are intimately connected to the decisions that we make in life and the deepest longings of our hearts. And so things like romantic relationships, family, education, our occupations, our financial considerations, all of these things have the potential to give us regret in life. And what they found is this, one in four homeowners have buyer's remorse. They regret the house that they bought. The biggest career, career regret that people have is to take a job that they hate just for the money. 29% of young adults regret posting something on social media for fear that it's going to get themselves in trouble at work. Now, I have two uh, issues with that. One, I don't think that statistic is high enough, and I don't think it's just young adults. 31% of people regret their tattoos. On and on and on. I don't know what it is that you regret this morning, but I do know this. Whatever your regret is, all of our regrets have one thing in common. They are completely hopeless. You see, the thing about regret is none of us have the power to go back and change anything. And so we're left with this kind of hopeless, powerless feeling that we can only call regret. Our passage this morning reveals something about this regret. We're told that Saul rejected God's word, and so God rejected him as king over Israel. And then Saul is filled with regret, a kind of half-hearted, superficial regret. But not only Saul has regret over his action. What Samuel tells us is that God had regret, that the sovereign God of the universe 
regretted making Saul king. I want to look at this kind of regret in three different ways. First, I want to look at Saul's rejection. Second, I want to look at Saul's regret. And lastly, I want to look at God's regret. And what we will see is that there is only one kind of regret that has power. The kind of regret that leads to our redemption. So first, I want to look at Saul's rejection. I want you to look with me at verse 1. Samuel comes to Saul, and this is what he says. The Lord sent me to anoint you king. Samuel is trying to remind Saul of his place. Saul, yes, you are king, but you must not forget the true king, right? The God of Israel. And he is the one who made you king. And so therefore, Saul, you have no excuse. You must obey his command. And this is what the Lord told Saul to do. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Saul's mission was to completely annihilate the Amalekites. It's the same kind of mission that God sent Joshua on to go and completely destroy everything that had breath in Jericho. And now God is commanding Saul to do the same thing to the Amalekites. In the Bible, what God is calling Saul to do is called a harem. It's known as harem warfare. A harem is the complete dedication of a person or a group of people who had offended God to completely dedicate them to destruction on the Lord's behalf. In other words... God was calling Saul to carry out his wrath and justice on the Amalekites. Now, as we hear that this morning, that does not sit well in our hearts and in our minds. The thought that this God, the God that we know to be loving and good, would call Saul to go completely destroy everything that has breath should give us pause. Yes, it should fill us with fear and awe. But I think if we're going to be honest this morning, it also fills us with its own sense of being almost abhorrent. God, what are you doing? Why would you command such an atrocious thing? That tension that you should be feeling right now. I want you to hold on to that. Don't just explain it away, because that tension is important. You see, we believe that our God is judge. He is righteous, and he is just, and he will carry out his justice on all evil. The Amalekites were incredibly wicked people, and they did incredibly evil things. And God was pouring out his justice on them. And the great wonder of the gospel, why we are even here this morning, is this, that God has carried out a harem that was meant for you and me, and he poured it out on his own son. And this is just. We'll talk more about that in just a second. This is what God called Saul to do. In verse 7, we see Saul's response. 
We're told that Saul defeated the Amalekites, but then he took Agag and he let him live. Verse 9. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the ox and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Simply put, Saul did not obey God's command. He led his people to keep all that was good, all of the good sheep, the good cattle, everything that was worthless, everything they couldn't use, they destroyed Now, Samuel doesn't get in down to the motivation of why Saul did this, but I think we can all rest assured that it wasn't because of a conflict of conscience. No, Saul had a conflict of interest. And if there's anything in our study of 1 Samuel to learn by now, it's this, that Saul was more interested in building up his own kingdom than the kingdom of God. And so he kept whatever was good for himself. And this is only confirmed by verse 12. We're told that Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. When Moses defeated the Amalekites, he built an altar to the Lord. When Saul defeated the Amalekites, he built an altar to himself. Saul was interested in himself, his own kingdom, his own agenda. And so brothers and sisters, I have to ask you and I have to ask myself this morning, what kingdom are you trying to build? Are you spending all of your energy and all of your thought trying to build the kingdom of God? Or are you trying to build your own kingdom? because that was exactly what Saul was trying to do. I want you to think about that kind of arrogance, that kind of self-centeredness. And I want you to listen to what Samuel said, because it might surprise you. Verse 17, Samuel said this to Saul, though you are little in your own eyes. Saul built an altar to himself. He was building up his own kingdom, pursuing his own agenda, rejecting the word of the Lord. How could he be little in his own eyes? Wasn't his problem that he was too big? No, God cuts right to the heart. His problem was not that he was too big, he was too little. You see, we are such short-sighted people. When all that we can see is our own little kingdoms and our own little pursuits, and the little roles that we play thinking this is God's purpose for us in life and that we are to pursue our own little agendas. Our problem is not that we have too big a view of ourselves, it's too little. Friends, what I want you to see is that God did not make you for your little kingdom. God made you in his image for the kingdom of God. And it is far bigger and far greater than any little kingdom that you could even think of building. And he hasn't made you and called you to be his own so that you could just play these little roles in your life. But he sent his own son to die in your place that you could be his own son or daughter. And now he has called you to be co-heirs with Christ as princes and princesses 
in the kingdom of God. And no, our problem is that our view of ourselves is too little. May we see ourselves and our callings through God's eyes. We are the apple of his eye. And he has stopped at nothing to draw us to himself. Do you see that this morning? Saul didn't. He didn't see how God saw him. All he could see was the kingdom that he was building with his own two hands. And so Samuel asks Saul to explain himself, to explain his disobedience. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And all Saul can do is to give excuses. Look with me at verse 21. The people did it. The people took the sheep. The people took the oxen and the spoil. Not only the people did it, but look, we we did it to make a sacrifice to you, God. We disobeyed you for you. Do you hear how crazy that sounds? But the most important thing, I want you to notice at the end of verse 21, Saul exposes where his true allegiance lies. Notice he says that we devoted these things to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Not the Lord my God, not even the Lord our God, but Saul says the Lord your God, because Saul had become his own God. And what's the price of Saul's transgression? We're told verse 23, Samuel comes to Saul and he says this, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. And all Saul is left with is regret. The second thing I want to look at is Saul's regret. He's exposed for the transgression maker that he is. Disobedient, more than disobedient, he is defiant opposing himself to God's authority. And so verse 24, he brings his regret to Samuel. He says, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. But what I want you to see is that Saul's regret is just superficial. He merely thinks he's just overlooked one of God's commands. He, he minimizes his sin. To make it more manageable, something he can control. I wonder, have you ever done that with your own sin? I know I have. But then notice verse 25. He says, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Now, why would he want Samuel to come back with him? So that he could keep up the appearance of authority. It's the same kind of thing he asked in verse 30. He said, I have sinned and yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. How do you know if your regret is just superficial? How do you know if your feeling of guilt is half-hearted? Well, when you care more about what other people think and your reputation than you do about your relationship with God. Saul wants to keep up his appearance. So all he's interested in doing is just washing the outside of himself 
rather than going to the heart. But his greatest problem, his most destructive problem, we see in verse 27. He asks Samuel to come back with him. Samuel refuses. And as Samuel turns to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. It's a powerful image. There exposed for the sinner that he is, grasped at the last bit of control he can, and he tries to retain his kingdom. You see, Saul was more grieved over the consequences of his sin than his sin. Brothers and sisters, how often does this describe us? We're more grieved, more sorrowful over the effects of our sin and the consequences and the ramifications and all that sin destroys in our lives than the fact that we are breaking God's holy word. Saul's regret was superficial. So often our regret is superficial too. So lastly, I want to look at God's regret. The Apostle Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 7, He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What does godly grief really look like? Saul had worldly grief. It wasn't a true grief. It was just a feeling of guilt or a feeling that he'd done something foolish or It was the kind of regret that he wished he could just take back. But we're told that godly grief leads to life and joy. What does that look like? I want you to look at verse 10. The word of the Lord comes to Samuel, and this is what God says. I regret that I have made Saul king. I regret that I have made Saul king king. Now, you should be asking yourself, can God have regret? Can the sovereign God of the universe, who has made all things, is controlling all things, who knows all things, can God have regret? Now, one answer to that question is called open theism. It's a view that gained popularity in the mid-90s. For the open theists, they believe that God is open to the future. And they made this theory as as a way to try to explain the problem of evil. If God is good and he is loving, then why do so many bad things happen? Why has he allowed such evil in the world? And so the open theist answer is, He didn't know it was going to happen. And so it's not his fault. It's not his fault. Now, I have two problems with that answer. The first is pastoral. As I look out on you, this congregation, and as even you consider your own life and one another's, we don't have to think too long before we recognize that life is hard. 
And there are such stories of pain in here and grief and sorrow. And so if you were to come into my office and say, Pastor, why has God let this horrible tragedy happen to me? And I looked at you and I told you, God didn't know it was going to happen. Does that give you more comfort or less? You see, the comfort that we have in this life is though it's painful and though we experience the brokenness of a fallen world every single day, God is in control. And though we may not understand his plan, nothing can get in the way of what he has said will happen. And he is with you in all things, in times of joy and in times of sorrow. But it's not just pastorally why I have a problem with open theism. The other problem I have is because of what the Bible teaches. And it's right here in 1 Samuel 15. It's verse 29. And also, verse 29 says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, God, the glory of Israel, he is sovereign and he is good, he is powerful and all-knowing, and he will not have regret. You should be confused right now. Because verse 15 says that God regretted that he made Saul king. And just a few verses later, verse 29 says God will not have regret. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? In the Hebrew, the word regret really means grief, deep-seated grief. Perhaps a better translation is that God was grieved that he made Saul king. And what you must begin to have in view as you think about the character of God is that God is able to be all-powerful and all-knowing and yet still be grieved for you and with you. As high and as lofty and as transcendent and majestic as God is, he is also intimate. And he knows your sorrow. And he knows your grief. And he has walked with you in them in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. There is no greater picture of God's sovereign, all-knowing regret than the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 29 tells us that his regret is not like ours. He is not a man like us. For us, our regret is powerless, and we look back and we wish that we could change things. For God, his regret is powerful, and his plan will come to pass. And he was so deeply grieved for you and for me, so filled with sorrow over your sin and over the brokenness that we experience every day in this life, that he sent his own son to bear your sin and to bear your sorrow on the cross. This is why Jesus wept when Lazarus died. 
Though he could have prevented his death and though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead, he still wept when he died. Why? Because he genuinely grieves for the pain that we feel. This is why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane mourned. He mourned to the point of sweating drops of blood. He said, my soul is filled with sorrow. He grieved over you, and he grieved over me. And it's why Jesus hung up on a cross, and he lamented, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, like any good father, God was filled with grief to pour out his wrath and justice on his son instead of you and me. Brothers and sisters, my friends, our God grieves with you, and he grieves for you to the point of death, even the death of his son, son on the cross. But the good news is this, he did not stay dead. And on the third day, he rose again, and one day, Jesus Christ will come again, And we are told that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. Because he is making all things new. Please join me in prayer. Father, we behold your mystery this morning. We confess that it's too much for us. And Father, after a passage like this, we need to catch our breath. But we pray, Lord, that you wouldn't let us just move on. We ask now that you'd give us eyes to see the cross of your son, Jesus, to see your grief as your son bore our grief, that we could have no more tears. Lord, as we sing this final hymn, help us to see the place where sorrow and love collide at the cross. And Lord, may we respond with worship. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.